the topic for today's episode barely needs an introduction. I have just two words for you. Hunger Games. Few franchises have worked their way into the public consciousness quite so much over the last two decades. Between the books, written by Suzanne Collins, and the blockbuster movies that followed, pretty much everyone knows at least a little bit about the Hunger Games. Just try and convince me that you have never used the phrase, I volunteer as tribute in casual conversation. Just try. I don't believe you. On episode 134, our focus is the first book in the original trilogy, which, like the series as a whole, is called The Hunger Games. Published in 2008, this book introduces us to Katniss Everdeen and the dystopian world of Pan M, in which every year, the wealthy capital forces each of the 12 surrounding districts to send two young tributes to fight to the death in an arena as a reminder of the capital's power. The whole thing is crafted as a glamorous TV spectacle, which makes it even grosser. The Hunger Games opens up conversations about so many things, and I think you are really going to love the interview you're about to hear. My guests and I discuss our first experiences with and impressions of The Hunger Games back when the hype was at its highest, and the way the franchise has impacted the YA category and pop culture as a whole. We make connections between The Hunger Games and the contemporary political landscape, and talk about how much we love the world-building Suzanne Collins does in the book. We reflect on the way Katniss's no-win experiences as a highly public tribute parallel the experiences of women in the public eye IRL. We wrestle with our complicated feelings about the star-crossed lover strategy employed by Katniss's fellow tribute PETA once they are in the Hunger Games arena. Do we even care about the love triangle storyline anymore? You'll find out. We think about the ways in which this page-turning book positions readers to consider bigger questions about the world around us. It is a super rich conversation, and I loved having it. I couldn't be more excited to welcome the hosts of the Old Millennials podcast as my guests for episode 134. Old Millennials is a pop culture podcast that provides a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early aughts. Hosted by Margot Poupard and Emily Beijing, this podcast goes into the history of your favorite movies, shows, music, and trends of your childhood and adolescence, while the co-hosts relive their personal connections to these pop culture icons. And they kind of hope you cringe as well as you remember your own. Season 5 of Old Millennials begins soon, so go check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can also find Old Millennials on Medium at Old Millennials Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. I had the chance to be a guest on Old Millennials last fall, and I had the best time. I knew as soon as we finished recording that I just had to have Margot and Emily on SSR, so this episode has been a long time in the making. I am so excited for you to listen. If you haven't already, please check out SSR on social media. There are exciting new things coming, and I promise I'm not just saying that, and I want to make sure you don't miss out on any of the fun. Follow along at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and find the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast or The SSR Podcast Community. If you are as excited as I am about all that's to come for the show in 2021, I would love it if you could help me spread the word about SSR. Take a screenshot of this episode and share it to your Instagram story, tagging SSR Pod so I can see. You can also post a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or simply tell a book-loving, pop culture buff friend that they have got to listen and subscribe. Take your support for the podcast to the next level by joining the SSR Patreon family. You'll get access to exclusive rewards while supporting the show in the process. And it's just a few dollars per month. Patron perks include bonus episodes, monthly newsletters, video reading recaps, monthly Patreon parties, SSR merch, and more. We have been having a ton of fun in the Patreon community so far this year, and I would love for you to join us. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. If you are already supporting SSR on Patreon, thank you so much. 
I have heard amazing things about the audio edition of The Hunger Games, and if you want to experience this book all over again after listening to this episode, I would highly recommend getting a copy of the audio on Libro.fm. With Libro.fm, you can support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks are exactly the same as the ones you would get from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. This is also your quick reminder that I recently launched SSR's bookshop.org storefront, which offers another great opportunity for you to support indies. Check it out at bookshop.org slash shop slash SSRPOD. Okay, listeners, it's time to enter the Hunger Games arena. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Margo. Hi, Emily. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Hi, Allie. Listeners, I'm so excited to have the co-hosts of the Old Millennials podcast on the show today. I was lucky enough to be on the show a couple of months ago. We talked about Sweet Valley. It was like one of the most fun nights I'd had in a long time, which says a lot about you both because you're great podcast hosts and also a lot about like the state of the world that we're living in right now that's sitting in my own home talking into a microphone about a book written 30 years ago like that was the time but I was like I have to have them on SSR yeah we were really excited when you asked us at the end of the episode to come on so we're like we have like such great chemistry we should totally do this together again And it was definitely one of our more popular episodes from last season too. And it like is still getting a lot of listens even now, even though it's a couple months old. So highly recommend people go and listen to it because it's a really fun chat. Oh, totally. I'm glad that people are liking it, but we're going to take like a very hard, hard turn on this because we, we, we talked about like the Wakefield on your show. Yes. And listeners, today is the day. We are finally tackling on SSR the Hunger Games, which I gotta say, I've been I've been nervous to tackle it because I know it means a lot to a lot of people. I know people have very strong feelings about it in all directions. It's a cultural fucking touchstone for we old millennials, I think, and for everyone, but especially the old millennials among us. But we're, I think we're prepared to do it. There are three of us. I think I think we're ready. I hope we can live up to the hype. Absolutely. <laughs> I know it was it was one of those things though. I'm just like recalling the lines people for people waiting for the sequel books and then the movies and just thinking like how much people really love this series. Yeah, it's beloved. So before we get into it and our like new experience with it, I'd love to hear from you both about your experience with the Hunger Games. If you read it, when you read it, maybe if you interacted with the rest of the series, with the movies. I want to hear everything. Margo, do you want to go first? So I was all right. I think this came out in 2008, 
before that. So I was in college, so I didn't really, it passed me by initially, but my first job out of college was at a media company. And when they were making the movie, Lionsgate sent us like a bunch of swag. And the book was just sort of like floating around the office. And one day I had left my lunch read at home or something. And I was like, whatever, I'll pick this up. Cause I thought I was too old to be reading this book, but I got immediately sucked in and like read it over like two or three lunches. I just completely devoured it. But because I read it so quickly, it didn't really quite sink in. And I think that I just remember the movie more clearly because then we had to go do press junkets for that. So got really caught up in like the hype of the first book, but I remember immediately losing interest in the subsequent books, but I just was very into it. And in rereading it, it was interesting how your brain like remembers things in like a different order. Like, oh, I thought this happened first, then that came later. But I, I think you made the the point on your Instagram yesterday, which is like, I'm when I go back and read older books, I'm always like ready for it to be like deeply problematic. And there are parts of it where you're like, yikes, but it wasn't as bad. Like it wasn't as bad rereading it as I thought it was going to be. It was no Sweet Valley. No, no, not at all. I don't know, man. Like Sweet Valley has its own survival that needs to take place with like stolen identities and whatnot, right? That's true. Those hollows were hardcore. <laughs> In terms of my experience, though, I didn't really read the book, the um, the first book, until around the time the movie was coming out. Because, like Margot, I was in college when the series came out, so I heard about it. I actually had friends who read it, but I didn't actually read it until uh, the first movie came out. Really enjoyed it. it; was a quick read for me. I didn't read the following two books, but rereading this almost ten years later, after everything that's happened. <laughs> in this world such a different lens but how about you Allie so I was 18 when it came out I was a freshman in college and I and I don't know that I've ever shared this on the podcast before but I had like a weird reading gap in college which I think a lot of people can relate to like even though I always loved reading and I was a total bookworm like there was just this like four years of my life that I read very little for fun. Um, I guess it's because I was reading a lot for school, but also like, I don't know, I, I don't think there are that many people who like, you know, as they're getting into bed in their dorms are like, hold on, like, let me put on my bedside light. And like, I got to read my book. It just like, isn't really part of the culture in a lot of colleges, I think, at least that wasn't my experience. And so I wasn't really like tapped into what people were reading for fun. Certainly not YA. I feel like when I was a teenager, I mean, YA was still such like a new category when we were in high school, I think. And I sort of feel like I just skipped it a little bit because it was so narrow. I feel like The Hunger Games is actually one of the books that sort of like legitimized the category. So I didn't read it when it came out. And then I really resisted it and resisted it and resisted it because at a certain point, it was one of those things where I was like, well, I've never read it. And so now I'm never going to like I'm it was sort of like a too cool thing, which is lame of me. But then when I started working in children's publishing right out of college, I guess that would have been, I started working there in 2012, which I think is the year that the first movie came out. And so there was all of this other buzz about Hunger Games. It was like coming to the surface again. And I didn't work at this publish at the same publishing house that published the Hunger Games. But of course, like there was so much talk about what was happening in the industry and like the Hunger Games phenomenon. And so finally I was like, okay, I should probably read it just to be informed. And I think I read it when I was like at my parents' house for Christmas. I read it in like a day. And then my whole family, like we decided that we were going to watch the movie. And then I was just so hooked that I think I, I, I had my Kindle and I just immediately downloaded the other two books. I'm pretty sure I blew through the rest in like a weekend. It was one of those situations. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just one of those, it is funny you bring up the YA and like the whole legitimacy of it. Cause I'm remembering the YA that I read in high school being very different. I was into much fluffier, if you will, things like I read all of the Princess Diary books that Meg Cabot wrote, very different from the movies, by the way. And also I was reading the Gossip Girl series, which again, much fluffier than the Hunger Games and a lot of the kind of more dystopian uh, survivalist, like if you will, maybe like sci-fi-ish uh, trilogies and, and other types of book series that came out afterwards. So you're, it is totally true just how, how much of a shift I think that world and that uh, realm kind of took in just, you know, the last 10 years. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. This is not a book that would have spoken to me just if I'd heard like a summary of it or even the cover, like the marketing of it, I don't think would have appealed to me when I was in the sort of quote unquote, like proper age group for it. I did not really want to read about war and like archery and literal life or death situations. I wanted to read about romances and being a secret princess. So yeah, I think I sort of had to be an adult and I had to finally I don't know, like succumb to the hype to appreciate it. So yeah, I mean, I think let's set the stage a little bit. So the first book came out in 2008. That's The Hunger Games of the Hunger Games trilogy. And then the second book is called Catching Fire. It came out in 2009. Mockingjay came out in 2010. And it's interesting that we're talking about this now because the prequel book was actually just released last May. And so that was very convenient. I don't know if you found this, but when I was looking for like fun essays and think pieces to sort of jog my memory. So much stuff came out last year because everybody was reflecting on the prequel um, coming out. And that book is called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And I think it's gotten pretty good reviews for what that's worth. I thought it was interesting because I went, so I'd never read the other books after I read the first one. And I ended up reading the book, not because of work or succumbing to hype or even like boredom. I remember flipping over the cover and reading about the writer and she used to write for TV and she used to write for Clarissa Explains It All. And that is kind of what brought me over to that side. And I started to remember around this time, around 2012, there were a couple former TV writers that were writing these books that got like a massive amount of hype, like Where Did You Go Bernadette? And so since I had read that or somewhere in there, I was like, oh, well, maybe it'll be just as entertaining since she knows how to put together a drama for teens, typically. So I, that was kind of what ultimately won me over with Hunger Games. But I remember hearing about the prequel, but I, for some reason, I thought it was a show and not a book. Yeah, it's a book. So it's interesting that you just said that about her background. Do you, both of you, do you feel like that background in TV, like, is is that reflected in this book in any special way, do you think? Do you remember feeling that way when you read it the first time or even this most recent reread? I feel like in the most recent reread, when I read it at the time, I think I was just really swept up in the story because I hadn't read anything like that. And like you guys had both mentioned before, I didn't, there were never really trilogies like this for YA, like in my age group when it was happening. It was like Princess Tires, or I was trying to remember, like, oh yeah, I read all of like the Confessions of a Shopaholic book. Yep. Is that a YA yeah. book? That was so, like my first adult book. And I think I still have a copy <laughs> from when I was like 15. And I, I, oh, I was, I felt so fancy when I read that book. Yeah, obsessed. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I want to live this life. Same. <laughs> oh, man. First adult books. I think mine was like prep. I think that was my first adult book that oh, I read in high school. Yeah. Uh, that's one of my all-time faves. I think I still have the original like paperback I bought when I was in high school. Yeah. Too. Yes. So classic. <laughs> uh, so classic. In terms of the writing, I do think that 
well, if you're, it's like a nerdy screenwriter thing. I think if you're a writer, you will be able to tell that like the way that she sets things up and paints a scene is very quickly and succinctly, but not like in a Hemingway sort of way. She does know like the, the words that punch the highest. And so she really gets a lot out of her word count, so to speak. So I feel like it, that's why it reads so quickly. It reads sort of like a script to me because you're sort of the action makes you want to turn the page, which is something that you have to do when you're writing screenplays. I would agree. I also think that the pacing works a lot similarly to TV. She doesn't focus too much on things that are not, you know, where other books might like keep going on the descriptions. And I find that the breaking points between chapters and then parts in this book are very akin to like ways cliffhangers would work in a TV on a like next time on, you know. Yeah, especially part two going to part three where she, you know, says his name out loud. It's like this is like a TV cliffhanger. This is like some lost shit. Yeah. Yeah, and I read something too about, and I don't really remember the second and third books very well, but I read in my research today that like all three books are written, I believe, in three parts. And I think there's like three, I don't think this is right because there are more than three chapters in each of the parts in this book, but there's something about like threes in all of these books that correspond pretty directly to the three act structure, which harkens back to her experience, not only in writing for TV, but also in writing plays. So I thought that was interesting. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that she had like, she's talked a lot about her influences for the Hunger Games. Um, she was heavily influenced by Greek myths, which I'm not very well versed in. But what I am very well versed in is reality TV, which is her sort of more contemporary inspiration. And she's told the story all around about how one night she was like flipping through the TV, like channel surfing, and she found herself flipping back and forth between like live footage of the Iraq war and reality TV, which I would assume in like 2006, 2007 was really just heating up and sort of like switching back and forth between those two things was what started this idea in her head. And I thought that was fascinating. And that's interesting you bring that up because I'm thinking of what was the, what were the top reality shows around that time? And there's two kind of main ones that I can think of because this is pre housewives. This is pre the confessional style apart from re real world. I think it's definitely survivor inspired the yes. way that it is. And I yes. have so many notes in this book that say, this is big brother. Like, yes. and I think big brother was just starting up at that time and maybe had already had a couple seasons in the UK. I don't remember, but, and I wonder how much the writer's strike also influenced her to push out this book because if it came out if she was flipping between the iraq war and reality shows and it's like 2006 2007 the writer's strike happens 2007 2008 that's when a lot of other writers kind of turned or pivoted to like different projects and i do wonder if that was sort of like the push for her to like finally work on this novel that she'd been thinking of this whole time yeah i think it's really interesting just like the the climate in which she wrote it she had written a successful middle grade series before called the underland chronicles and so she had some credibility with Scholastic, and that's her publisher. Um, I read a lot of interviews with her editor, David Levithan, who's an author in his own right. Yeah. And I heard him speak a couple of times. He's a really interesting guy. And just like the stories he told about the origin of all of this, and it sounds to me as though like because she had already established credibility with the Underland Chronicles, like she was able to sell this without giving them a ton of information. I think she sold it as a trilogy and it was just like a few pages about each book. She didn't break it down very much. And he told a story in one of the interviews I read and listeners, I'll link to all of the interviews and everything else that I discovered in the show notes for this episode. But he told a story about how the weekend that the manuscript finally made its way around I think there were only a few people in house who had read it and they all came back on Monday having like devoured it in, you know, 24 hours like the rest of us did. 
And all that they could say was, holy shit. Like, that's literally what he said. He was like, everybody was just looking at each other and saying, holy shit, what are we going to do with this book? And what's so funny about it is funny. I mean, what's stark about it, I guess, is this book comes out in 2008. I'm pretty sure it comes out before the collapse of the economy, before all these movements, you know, in response to that happen, obviously. But it is so funny how much the haves and have nots and the kind of the wealth gap and how much of a theme that becomes ties in so well now looking at back when it was published, that already existed, of course, but how predictive it was of kind of the world we would be looking at a few years later. Yeah, it, it's so true. And that actually just got me thinking, like, when this book came out and the year after, it was such a shitty time for so many people. And so it's like this book weirdly became escapist because people got so drawn into it. And it's like this whole other world. And it felt like people were being swept into a completely different universe. When to your point, Emily, it's like, no, there's actually a lot of real world stuff going on here. I think dystopia is just like an interesting genre period. And I'm wondering if either of you have any thoughts about this, because it was such a moment in time, I think that like these YA dystopians were killing it. And I've read a lot actually recently about whether or not the dystopian genre is going to totally disappear post knock on wood COVID-19, just because like this isn't what people want to read anymore. And I do think like there are a couple that I loved. I loved Matched. I loved the Divergent series, all of which I came to when I was in my 20s too, because I just, this was when I was working in children's publishing. But I do think that dystopia, dystopian lit is just so weird to me when I think about it, especially like in the context of 2008 and 2009, like the fact that we thought that this was escapist when the world was already kind of falling apart, at least from a financial perspective, it's kind of fascinating. It is really funny that you bring that up because that was my first thought when I finished Hunger Games. I'm like, what's going to happen to dystopian YA? Because I don't, I, I mentioned this on the Sweet Valley High episode, but I had read a book, Leave the World Behind. And it is like a little bit dystopian-ish, but it's like based in reality and they acknowledge that it's based in reality. But this is like a full-blown whole other world with its own other set of rules. And I just, I do wonder about that, like with The Walking Dead ending, like the series has ended a long time ago, like the comic book version, but now with the show kind of coming to a close, like, is there space for it? I don't know. It doesn't seem that people really want any more pandemic adjacent content, but Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that I, I would 100% agree. I think the escapism that we're looking for now is probably a lot less gritty than what dystopian <laughs> narratives offer us. And, you know, it got me thinking to what the first like dystopian book I ever read was. And I'm pretty sure it was The Giver. Like I'm thinking yeah. back to when that might be it because I was in middle school when I read that. Was it required reading for either of you? Because it was for me. Yes. I don't think so because The Giver is kind of controversial. But wait, where did you guys grow up? I grew up in Burbank. Oh, yeah, that's why. I grew up, Emily. <laughs> and I grew up right outside D.C. in Virginia. Oh, yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, we were not offered The Giver. Um, I found my own way to it. And my mom loved The Giver. And I, I remember there was always a copy on our shelf from when I was little. But I think I would imagine that my school district maybe didn't ban The Giver, but was like not super fond of it. Not encouraged <laughs> to read. Yeah. No. I definitely think it might have been the younger teacher I had in middle school who assigned it, not the older teacher, if that gives like you a clue. Teacher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got that hip teacher that assigns exactly. the, you know, underground literature. <laughs> yeah. But The Giver really was like the forerunner of books like The Hunger Games. And 
you know, we obviously are not going to get into a Harry Potter, JK Rowling conversation right now, but Harry Potter then hit the scene in like 1997, 1998. And that was, that of course had its dark parts. It got very dark, especially at the end. But I think, especially in the early books of the series, there was like a brightness and a lightness to it. And it was not dystopian and it, it was a new world. It wasn't like the destruction of our existing worlds. Instead, it felt much more like the creation of something new. And then we sort of ushered in this whole other age of dystopian lit, which is, it's just interesting. Like why, like, why do we love to read this shit? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's a reminder of like, at least we're not at this point. True. I mean, (laughs) I definitely feel like I've moved away from it, especially in the, especially in the last four years. It's just like, I, I don't need any more darkness, but I guess everything sort of has its time and place in the culture, so to speak. And I think, you know, Obama years were definitely way more shiny and glossy. And so you want to kind of go the other way. It's in some ways to be like, oh, to like remind yourself. But it's not like even when you tell people, it's not like they're going to listen. So I think it was just sort of like the yin and the yang of how people perceive things to be going. If they think everything's going fine, then I think you get like Breaking Bad and Walking Dead and Hunger Games. And then when things are like not going so well, you get like, I don't know, Bridgerton, you know? I want to go back to Confessions of a Shopaholic. Like that's a little bit I'm on right now. (laughs) Let's circle back to Sophie Kinsella. Let's talk about the Hunger Games and the world that Suzanne Collins has built in this particular dystopian novel. So we're introduced to Katniss Everdeen. Great character name, by the way. Like, let's just take a minute and meditate on Katniss Everdeen as a name. I read into like all of the origins of this and I didn't realize like that it's it is in fact a plant which I kind of knew but looking at Collins's interview talking where she's like talking about she was looking for plants she finds out that uh, the arrowhead plants where Katniss is you know one of the arrowhead plants or a name for it that the Latin is Sagittaria which our Sag Queen Margot over here is the archer. So I like, I love all this symbolism that Collins has packed into just her name. Yeah. And it just sounds good. Like it's just cool. So like points right there for a great character name. I'm all about names. And Katniss lives in district 12 of Pan Am. There used to be 13 districts. The districts all surround a wealthy capital And this is all in the context of like the former United States. Um, So Katniss lives in District 12 in what seems to have formerly been like Appalachia. Um, And like fun fact, my book club for years, we sort of without meaning to, we kept picking books that were about and based in like the Appalachian region. We didn't know. And then it was like four books and we're like, oh, we're the Appalachian book club. And we didn't even mean to. So I was like, oh, we could add this to our list if we ever decide to go back that route. There's so much to discuss about Pan Am and their history. But basically what happened is that all of these districts at one point years earlier had rebelled against the capital because the capital is so much more wealthy. And in order to sort of remind them of the fact that they really fucked up and caused a rebellion and also just as a reminder that like they are not in power the capital put this thing called the hunger games in place and within the structure of the hunger games every year each district has to send two tributes one boy and one girl to quite literally fight to the death in an arena and only one can win and this is all for sport it's for entertainment it's again a reminder of how little power the districts have in relation to the capital, it's really a matter of like power and oppression and um, sort of how you can tie all of that up in a little sparkle and like TV magic and the crossover between 
sort of like Collins's inspiration, like reality television and war. That's really like the best way to boil it down. Do we feel like I captured that pretty well? Anything either of you want to add? No, I think it's good. Great. Doing great so far. So we meet Katniss. What are our first impressions of her? Now that we're all adults, we're old millennials. How do we feel about her on this reread? I feel like she starts out strong and then obviously a bunch of traumatic stuff happens to her and then then she sort of starts to I feel like towards the end I'm like okay I just need to get through to the end a little bit but I feel like she starts out so strong is such a badass from the gate has gone through some stuff but also kind of like looks at it pretty pragmatically for like a 15 year old I think I'm just really struck by how responsible and mature she is but without it sounding sometimes in YA books like the mature responsible sounding female lead especially can kind of come across as like maternal or overbearing and she really I really appreciate her self-confidence yeah I would say the same and I do think it, it is very interesting that like we're given this beginning there what I like about her is that we're given enough context about her past and her life to ensure that you know the moments that when in which she does seem unlikable or or tough we understand where that comes from like you said margot that pragmatism it comes from having to basically take be the breadwinner her literal breadwinner for the family um and having to you know be a hunter gatherer from a very young age and like just all these things like we, we we get just enough information at these key points which is what you know back to the tv writing with collins like we're in, we're able to really like this character that otherwise if we were to just meet not that we would meet katniss everdeen on the street but if we were to meet someone like her we might otherwise think of her as maybe like rude or just very curt or difficult. I think you said a lot of really interesting things there that have my wheels turning about like women in like the public arena. And I think there's a conversation to be had there. Before we go there, I did want to read a quote that I found from the YA author Leah Johnson. Listeners, you might know her as the author of You Should See Me in a Crown, which we talked about during New Reads November on the podcast. She's an awesome YA author. And I found an article on Shondaland that was published last year that's basically like a bunch of YA authors reflecting on the impact of Suzanne Collins and the Hunger Games on their work and on the YA space in general. And Leah Johnson of Katniss said, She is everything girls are warned against becoming. Katniss is everything I was warned against becoming. And she is exactly the kind of heroine I hope each of my leading ladies is, the kind of tradition that I'm interested in writing into, one in which young women can be all things and be all of those things to a fault because that wholeness is at the heart of their greatness. Um, And I think it's worth noting that at least in You Should See Me in a Crown, Leah Johnson um, put forth a queer heroine, which is thankfully like finally happening and not a big deal, but... I do think that there's something to be said for the fact that like we needed to have characters like Katniss to sort of pave the way for characters who are introducing this whole new tradition into YA. And I hate that it took so long, but I love to hear that that an author like Leah Johnson found some inspiration to write her characters that are like a very important new voice and a very important new model for teens. I I just love that Katniss laid some of the groundwork for that. And it makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I so it was funny that you brought up that, that, you know, women in the public eye, how women are portrayed in the media and whatnot. Like, again, I, I feel like my notes are just chock full of, oh, my God, this reminds me of, you know, XYZ. But 
there is especially the points in which Katniss is on Caesar Flickerman's show. She talks a lot about how Thresh, the tribute from District 11, can appear curt, not warm, short sentences, all this stuff, but she cannot be that way. And I just kept thinking back to like 2016 when like Hillary Clinton ran for office and how she had to be coached to be likable because being a competent overly qualified woman who was probably the most qualified candidate of all time for a major party was just not enough because she was seen as unlikable. Emily, I marked a page in here when she's trying to get like sensitivity coaching um, from Haymage. And um, I wrote at some point, I'm like, he broke her when she's like, I don't know who I am. He's like, okay, try being humble. Try being this. It's like the different things were like, you're just not good enough showing up as yourself, even if you score an 11 and that never happens, that kind of stuff. And how she has to constantly be second guessing herself I guess that's the part that really starts to upset me but I guess it's what happens to all young women to a certain extent where like you start out so self-assured and confident in yourself and a little bit over time a voice gets in your head and it makes you second guess yourself and it just keeps happening to her when she doesn't trust her own instincts and it it's painful to read through sometimes I totally agree and that scene when she's on that show being interviewed is so interesting because even when she's sort of like settles into the persona that like Cinna, her stylist encouraged her which is basically like be yourself like pretend that you're talking to me your friend that still is as far as in my opinion and I, I wonder what you think about this that was still sort of like a sanitized like almost silly version of who she really was or is you know if, if we're thinking of her like our gal pal in the present tense you know the idea is like look at me and sort of tell a joke and be funny and pretend that you're like talking to a friend and I I didn't feel like her behavior in that interview when she sort of introduced to all of Pan Am as the District 12 tribute was that reflective of the character that we saw early in the book when she was out hunting with Gail like that's not who she is and so I think even even when she got to a point where she was supposedly comfortable with the way she was presenting herself like that's not really who she was but I think she had gotten so confused by that point that like she didn't really know what to do and even when she tries to win people over to her side like when she does like a little spin it later on you overhear one of the career tributes be like I'm gonna fucking stab her because she's spinning around like some dits so it's like she can never get it right like you're hated for being something that you're not and you can't be the person that you are yeah one of the things that was that i'm dying to talk about so i think we should talk about it right now because it makes sense in the context of this conversation is the extent to which she and Peta are forced together romantically um as part of their strategy for winning the game so listeners a quick refresher Peta is the other tribute from district 12 he um is the son of the baker and Katniss has this like vague recollection of growing up. There was a time when she was out looking for food for her family right after she lost her dad. They were like basically on death's doorstep. They had nothing. And Peta gave her bread, which he wasn't supposed to do. He got in huge trouble with, I believe it was his mom. Um, he was punished for giving the bread away. And she never really forgot that, but they hadn't really interacted very much since. And now they find themselves thrown together as tributes for, again, a life or death situation it becomes clear to Katniss during this interview as Peta is like introducing himself as basically Pan Am's sweetheart. He's like, yeah, I, I do have a crush on a girl back home, but she's here, which kicks off this a whole subplot that 
PETA is masterminding in some ways, that their team of mentors is masterminding. And I was just like, throughout most of the book, I was trying to figure out like which part pissed me off more, like the, all the violence and all the gore or like on the flip side, this weird romance that I actually think I probably loved the first time I read this when again, it's not like I was 15. I was like 22. Even then I was like very taken with it. And I thought it very romantic, like sort of this forbidden love two lovers thrown together in a dire situation. But now when I read it, it just made me feel really icky. Well, especially towards the end. Well, they set up this whole star-crossed lovers narrative, which I wrote somewhere in the book, like, don't you know how star-crossed lovers end? It's never (laughs) like a positive thing. But I would agree. I think I was swept up in the romance the first because I'm like, oh my God, he has a crush on her. And I I don't know, maybe it just, it read differently the first time where I think maybe you just are more swept up with being a part of this world that you haven't been a part of before. But now, yeah, it feels extremely creepy, especially that they force it on her. And it's so Stockholm syndrome-y. Like there are parts where I'm like, this is trauma bonding. So is that. Like, And she can't, She. it's sort of like, I'm reading uh, One to Watch right now. And it's like, she starts out sort of being like, I have a plan. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave my feelings out of it. And then through trickery and like slight manipulation, suddenly it's like the plot gets lost and the divide between reality and what you're buying into and trying to separate the two become almost unmanageable. And you feel bad because again, she's so young too. She's 15, 16. Like she doesn't have the tools. Like she's constantly in survival mode. So it just feels like they really throw her to those weird genetic dogs that they have at the end. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. What do you think, Emily? No, I mean, I feel I feel the same way. And to be honest, within the whole book, I, you know, reading a bunch of think pieces about this, they go a lot of people go back to this, the love triangle that the because that's what essentially happens is Peta, Gail, Katniss, and and how necessary is it? You know, what does it really do to the book? Does it advance the plot? Or would the plot be okay without that concept and that conflict. And I did like reading one of the interviews with Suzanne Collins, what I think also with David Lebsan. And she did say something that the, this love triangle, it's not so much just like the love tri- triangle between Katniss, Peta, and Gail, but also just like the conflict in Katniss's worldview of how she sees war and this conflict where Dale being, or sorry, Gail, oh my gosh. I'm like losing it today. Um, Gail being like coming from this world of where she comes from of hunter gatherer, like conflict, war, like violence is going to be the way we resolve this conflict. PETA being the son of a baker coming from this very different world where it's a lot more diplomacy. It's a lot more conversation. It is interesting though, that it ended up that we couldn't just have Katniss's worldview, like learning about how Katniss is going to pick her worldview outside of that. So for me, sometimes that love triangle felt in what is otherwise a dystopian novel where this woman is just trying, this young woman is just trying to survive. (laughs) Shouldn't have to really worry about, oh, what should we go, how should we go about portraying this relationship or quote unquote relationship I'm supposed to be having with this person? Or even her worries, like back to Gail, like, will he know it's fake? Or And then she even starts to like blame herself towards the end where she was like, oh, now they think I'm like, they either think, I'm a floozy because I was too free and liberal with my kisses or that I'm like faking it and they're upset that I'm faking it. Again, I really feel like she is always put in like impossible positions that based on all of the spoilers that I read on Goodreads, because I could not help myself. I'm like, who does she end up with? I really, I 
don't know. And it was really disappointing to find out that the whole reason why she even goes to the Hunger Games in the first place is to spare her younger sister who then dies in the third book. I was like, that's, I would be upset. And, you know, I love, I'm a glutton for punishment. So I love to read the one star reviews. I was like, yeah, give me those spoilers and tell me why you don't like it. (laughs) I love to read one star reviews. Side note, like, it's weird. I listen, I like to read one star reviews of podcasts, which is cruel as a podcaster, but I only read one star reviews of like big podcasts that don't need five star reviews. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what, I just love it. <laughs> Maybe I would have thrived in the arena of the Hunger Games. Probably not. Armed with a phone. <laughs> right. I, if I had a phone, I could, I could, maybe I would do okay. But yeah, I agree with everything that you're saying. And I think as I was reading, I just, for me, like the balance kept shifting between the focus on like Katniss as this, not to be reductive about it, like girl power figure, but then also being swept up in this romance. And then also the balance between this as a survival story and this as a romance. Like I couldn't quite figure out the balance as the book went on. And then I couldn't figure out how I felt about it, which makes me feel like I didn't feel comfortable with it because I think I would know if I felt like it struck the right note with me at least as a 30 year old and I think it did as a 22 year old like I think that I was really swept up in it I remember getting to the end of the first book and it is an awesome cliffhanger I remember I mean I already said like I immediately bought the second book and I wanted to know what would happen but it is interesting what's happened in the ensuing eight years or so not only have I gotten older but also so much has happened as we talked about earlier, like our worldview, I think collectively has changed so much. And I think I read these kinds of stories so much more critically, which I think is a good thing because I'm like intellectualizing things differently. And I like to think that maybe it's given me a little bit more self-respect as a woman, um, maybe hopefully, but yeah, I just, I really was like kind of conflicted about how I felt about the romance. I think what really bothered me the most was toward the end of the book when their relationship, which for for a minute there actually did seem kind of authentic and genuine, although it was trauma bonding. Um, It did feel like there was something meaningful that came out of that. But then we have this weird turn where we find out that basically the whole country has now turned against Katniss because she ensured that they could both be winners in an unprecedented move. And so she has to like play up her relationship with PETA and her love for PETA in order to make sure that people don't turn against her. And so then I I was like, at first it seemed good because the relationship seemed real. But then I was like, all these adults are like forcing her to essentially like manipulate her emotions, manipulate her like love interests, sort of manipulate her body too, because they're insisting that she demonstrate her affection to him in public. That's when it really crossed a line for me. Up until then, I was like, okay, the star-crossed lovers things, even if it's annoying, it's sweet. It's something we've seen before. It doesn't feel... It doesn't feel too icky, but once it once we transitioned to the point where their relationship was being forced by the adults, it was being manipulated for her public image. That's that I think that's when it really changed for me. Force becomes like a big theme in this, obviously. Like in the get-go, everybody, you know, they live in poverty. They are forced to work and forced to be in these situations where they make they're making no money. They live on very terrible rations and are most people are starving. And then she's forced into this literal arena where she has to fight for her life. And once she has passed that test, survived, and found a loophole so to keep both of them alive, is then forced into this whole relationship and publicity stunt that always kind of get the line is blurred between fact and fiction. Yeah, publicity stunt is the perfect phrase for it. And it is just strange that, like, it's one thing if, you know, 
two celebrities want to enter into like a PR relationship, like as adults, but to essentially like marry her off. And it is not, and it's not consensual at all. It's like either you sell this or they're going to kill you and your whole family. I mean, it's coercion. So it's just like the way that every man in her life like lets her down in a different way or like ends up betraying her in one way or another, except for Cinna, I guess. I guess he's the best person that kind of comes off. You just feel really bad for her because she has no one really to turn to but Gail. And the things that she has to do to keep herself alive, like for the sponsors in the arena, I feel like that to me, like that part was the part that got a little icky. Like they literally set her on fire and then like she has to beg for burn cream, that kind of stuff. It's like, do you want her to stay in it or do you not? Yeah, that was icky. I will say on a positive note, there were some things that I, I think the same things that I really loved other than the weird star-crossed lovers thing, things that I loved when I read it the first time that I, I still loved. And I wanted to touch on those. I, I loved all of the like prep for the games, obviously bearing in mind that this is a really messed up system. This is disgusting. This should not be allowed. This is a gross, abusive power. Hate to see it. It upset me. All of those things remain true. As a book, as a piece of world building, I did think that the way Suzanne Collins designed this journey that PETA and Katniss take to the Capitol, and then the fact that they stay in this amazing hotel, and the fact that she thought through the details of, okay, and then they have to do an interview, and then they're going to be styled, and then they're going to make these grand entrances into the arena, and then there's going to be sponsors that they have to impress, and then they're going to go to these trainings, and they're going to be rated, like, I thought that that it worked so well for our contemporary viewpoint. And again, it's no secret to the SSR community. I love reality TV. So I eat this stuff up. But I think even years later, I think I see it now in terms of world building. And I'm like, the fact that she thought through all of this, I think that that is part of why this book was so successful, why this Hunger Games franchise has become such a cultural touchstone for so many people Because you can get into it, like, even as you know that this is wrong, even as you can look at this as a political structure that's damaging and murderous, you can still be like, as a world, like, you have not missed a beat. And I really did enjoy the level of detail reading it this time. The prep leading up to it, too, I thought did a really good job. And I think I and I felt the same way when I read it the first time was it it really builds you up and like makes gets you like feeling like, oh, my God, like maybe it is going to be okay. Like she she can live like this forever. And then the shock and like the disappointment of like, yeah, and then tomorrow you go and potentially die. I don't know. Bye. Have a good night. Like and the tension between her and the redhead servant that also works there that whole dynamic was like yeah. really interesting even though it doesn't necessarily go anywhere it just was an interesting view into just everyday life without having to like spell it out like just what happens when you get captured and it was also a good setup for the ship that pulls you up when you die in the arena and I will say that with like all of Collins's writing throughout this whole thing, it could be, there could be so many moments in which this could be so expository. Like, but it just, she, with, with that story with, I forget what they call, are they AVEX, I think, or, or what they, AVEX, but just telling you these bits and pieces here and there, weaving that in is enough to give you a, a good worldview so that yes, the star, there is such a juxtaposition between the 24 hours pre-Hunger Games where she is being dressed, she can eat whatever she wants, all these things only to be thrown into that world again. But we've been prepared for that to see 
yes, how she was, how that girl was trapped, all these various things. And I think it sets it up in such a way where it's, it's jarring, but yet not 100% surprising. I think the most jarring stuff is the post when they get, when they re-enter society or whatever. I remember both times being just as disturbed when she was, you know, sort of like in an induced coma to like heal her wounds and have multiple surgeries, they tried to give her bigger boobs. And that is, first of all, just like, so like, of course, they tried to do that. Like, what would any, you know, patriarchal society want to do? But also like makes me really sad. It's like a throwaway detail, essentially, but it like, it sticks with you. I felt the same way. It was one little line in this longish book and I, I, I highlighted it. I underlined it. Yes. I think that says so much. I thought the other sort of shorter line that packed a big punch for me toward the end was after they're back, I believe it's when they're um, like preparing to go do their like follow-up interview with Caesar Flickerman and they're with the stylists and the stylists are like talking, not Cinna and Portia, our favorite characters, sort of like just the people that do hair, they're like kind of hanging out around them. And they are talking about the games and how exciting the games were and all the drama that took place. And Katniss notes that all that they're talking about is sort of their experience watching the games, not what actually happened to the tributes who are in the arena. And listeners, you know, we've gotten swept up in these, I think, fascinating conversations about the big picture here and about the politics of this book. But the bottom line is, is that we watched 22 children be brutally murdered in this book. That's what all of these citizens of Pan Am have watched happen on their TVs as well. And so Katniss's experiences of observing these wealthy capital citizens acting as though they'd taken part in this ritual with her, but only having the like capacity to see like, oh, it reminds me of like, oh, going to hang out with your girlfriends to watch The Bachelor, but not recognizing that like people's lives are literally ruined by the like bullshit that is wreaked on that show. And I say that as somebody who watches it, even though I know it's very problematic and I'm working through all of that, but it's it's worse than that. But it's it's sort of like that. It's like, watching brutality for sport and Katniss realizing like, no, you guys, I'm like right here. Like, if you want to know what happened with the Hunger Games, like ask me, I'm, I'm right here. And all you can talk about is how you watched it. It's so funny. You funny you bring that up. I've been thinking so much. So Margo and I have of course watched the Britney Spears documentary. I don't know if you have Allie as well. I have. I love it. Yeah. And it's fantastic, but I think it points out a lot of the way we viewed Britney Spears 15, 20 years ago. I mean, we, we were we were all middle schoolers or high schoolers or early college, but still, this is the way, the lens with which society saw Britney Spears and the way we talked about her and just like the way we would talk about watching a performance of hers when she was going through all these terrible things, like at the VMAs or whatever. And now looking through this lens of just like, we were asking a 22, 23 year old to survive having paparazzi like be in her face all the time and to deal with like her marriage falling apart, a former partner basically throw her under the bus. Like all of these things that we put someone through that now we have a lot more empathy and sympathy for, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, it's almost, it's, it's a very, much less intense because she, you know, death and murder is not happening, but in some ways very much reminded me of that. 
It's difficult to hear people talk about you like you're not around generally, but I can't imagine what it feels like when you watched your little sister surrogate get stabbed in like a fishing net, like in front of your face and you felt like you couldn't stop it. I like the fact that this book kind of like confronts sort of like the effects that this can have on you afterwards, like the PTSD without naming it, because what I always kind of find the most interesting that doesn't always necessarily get covered like at the end of like a horror movie or like a thriller or a dystopian thing like how is this person dealing afterwards like it's great that they survive but what is it how are they going to act after and I like that you kind of get like a glimpse and it seems like the second book kind of fleshes out more of her trauma and her trying to process being through the Hunger Games but as more terrible things are happening and how it's it hampers her ability to be the badass that she that we meet in the very beginning of the book. And so I found that to kind of be a little bit more like thought provoking, especially for like a YA, like you can read into it if you want to, it's there. But if you don't want to, and you just want to escape to a dystopian future, then you can do that too. And I think that's sort of like the best kind of YA is like, if you really want to pull a deep theme, you can. Yeah, I came across one quote that I wanted to share with you both to get your thoughts and you may have come across it too, but I think it actually, what you just said, Margo, was a great segue. So there was a piece on Vox where basically a few of the culture writers were reflecting on like the 10-year anniversary of the Hunger Games. The headline is 10 years later, is the Hunger Games still shocking? And one of the culture writers who was interviewed for this talks about how she like didn't want to read the book. She didn't like the book at first. I think the word she used was like, I didn't respect the book. But then, and this is the part that I want to quote, she said, then I turned the page and realized that the love story was a tactic, that it was designed to make the audience within the book, watching the Hunger Games on TV, react exactly the same way that I, reading the book, reacted to make them say, oh, how sweet, and pay attention for a minute longer. For me, this is the genius of the Hunger Games. It's able to make me incredibly aware of my own emotional reactions to storytelling tropes, And then it creates enough distance that I can interrogate my reactions. Whom do I consider worthy of my attention? What violence truly hurts me and what violence do I ignore? What makes a person's death a tragedy? The Hunger Games creates exactly the state of mind I need to think those issues through. What do we think about that? I think the thesis here is like the Hunger Games like strips you raw emotionally in a certain way so that you can maybe interpret bigger issues, political issues, issues of gender equality, issues of power in a way that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. I think this is true, especially probably for teenagers. But what what do we think? I thought that that was a pretty fascinating theory. Especially the part about which death do you consider a tragedy? Because I'm sure everybody has a different read. And I think that that's sort of like the reality showification of it. That is very interesting because everybody has their faves, right? And you would assume the same of the Hunger Games. And so when they go home, some people are upset, some people are. And so it is interesting, like what, It's also like, what's a tragedy for the people who are in the Hunger Games? Like, obviously, like a career, a career tribute getting murdered. You're like, whatever, thank God. But then like Sweet Little Rue or even Thresh, like what, how do you feel about that? Like they've never had anybody ever win from their district or even like the District 12s, like clearly they were rooting for them too. So that would have been a tragedy. But listening to somebody get mauled to death by a set of like, I don't know, weirdly genetic dogs, like, isn't that a trap? Like, is he not deserving of sympathy? Or is it because he was such an asshole the whole time that you don't have any left? I I find that to be um, a super interesting question. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you that it is one of those, yeah, it gives us a moment to reflect on 
how these people are portrayed and then how we view those tropes and how we get sucked into them time and time again and how we can kind of in the end see ourselves a bit in those watching this especially in the district and that same article that you're talking about Ali there was one quote that came up that someone said and it leaves always leaves me hyper aware that I'm not Katniss. I'm not even close. I'm in the Capitol. I have to respect the guts out of a book willing to make that fact so clear. We would be the viewers in this case watching this for our dear lives. And then so so for us, it's almost meta in a way, like reading a book that's ultimately showing us like it's a mirror. And it I hate to like bring theater into this, but it reminds me a lot of I'm a big musical I'm a big musical theater person and company, Stephen Tonheim's musical is one of my favorite musicals of all time. And what's fascinating about that musical in particular is it was one of the first times a musical was written where it was literally the story of the people, the theater goers in the audience, a bunch of couples in New York and their various like things that were happening and, and, you know, their obsessions with the life of their one single friend on the eve of his like 35th birthday. And so these stories about these people's marriages and their relationships and their divorces and all that are coming out. And ultimately it is the stories of these people that um, are based very much so on the people in the audience who have paid all this money to come see these shows to get away from their problems. Much like we pick up this book, not so much maybe to get away from our problems, but for some sort of an escape only to see ourselves in it to an extent. Ooh, yeah. That's, those are excellent points. I feel like I've been saying that this whole time, but you both make such great points. So I wanted to have you on the podcast, but yeah, I think it's, it is a conversation about privilege that I certainly wouldn't have had the language around when I read this, even when I was in my early twenties, I'm glad that I have that language now, even though it's still a very complicated conversation. It's a very convicting conversation. I think for a lot of us, as you said, Emily, to recognize, like we would probably be in the Capitol, um, watching all of this, like a show. And that is it's difficult because we read this book and we're like, who do these people think they are? This is a disgusting abuse of power. But when we look at the way that the world is actually structured right now in 2021, where do we actually stand? So it does force you to ask some of those questions. And yeah, there's a love triangle. triangle. So everybody, we, we get it. There's a love triangle too, but there's, there's big stuff to be addressed as well. And I'm so glad that we focused on some of those big questions. I don't know if I'm team Peter or team Gail, everybody. So don't ask me. And we're not even going to go there because it's reductive. And honestly, I don't know that I really like either of them. On the whole, coming back to this book, did it exceed your expectations? Did it disappoint you? I'd love to know where you both come in on that question. I think it definitely exceeded my expectations. I think I went in being like, okay, whatever. Like it's this, I, I think I did the book a disservice by assuming it would be like the movie for some reason, even though, you know, the release dates are flops. So I was like, oh, it's just gonna be this like blockbuster of a book and it's not going to be that deep. And I kind of already know the story, but I think when you think that it kind of leaves room for you to be impressed and surprised by certain things. And I was really, you know, surprised by like the amount of tabs I ended up having. Cause I was like, oh, that's, that's fucked up. Like, ooh, like, oh, that's PETA trying to be like a little feminist icon over here. And I just found it to be a lot more rich than I thought. And like we've talked about, you know, ad nauseum, like the world building is so much fun, especially when you're kind of past the the spectacle of the love triangle, you can really kind of like appreciate the details that she kind of lays in there and things that you missed the first time. So definitely exceeded. I would say the same. And in and for me, I always judge a great book 
not by its cover, <laughs> but sometimes, but sometimes at the beginning, but I, I judge it by how I, how much I get out of it upon its first read. And then what happens when I read it, reread it, however many years later. And for me, I think it exceeds my expectations because I got something very different out of it. The first time I read it, there's the narrative I enjoyed. There was a bit of the love triangle that I probably enjoyed as well. And now 10 years later, rereading it, I get so much more out of it because of its the historic context in which this is released and everything else happens around it. And because I've done more reading, learning around privilege, feminism, various other themes that like I just maybe was somewhat versed in 10 years ago, but certainly didn't have the vocabulary for or the the kind of points of view and philosophy that could help me kind of read this now with that kind of a lens. Yeah, I I think that while certain elements of the book disappointed me simply because of their commentary on power and privilege and gender and feminism, like some of those things were let down. I think the quality of the conversation that we've just had about it to me is is proof that there's still a lot in this book that's important and the world building is fun. So for me, it struck a good balance of being a fun read. I did fly through it. And right now I'm like bogged down with so much reading with school and podcast reading that I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it feels daunting to start a new podcast book. And this was actually fun. So I will plug that about it. And yeah, listeners, I think you can tell from the quality of this conversation that while we may not have quote unquote, like agreed with a lot of the sensibilities that's put forth in this book. And maybe some of it doesn't age that well. There's a lot here. And I would recommend reading it again, because it might surprise you. So yeah, that's my take. Other than The Hunger Games, what have you both been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? I heard one to watch, Margot. I loved that book. It's so much fun. I'm blowing through it. And I have to say, I meant to DM you earlier, but I read self-care at the end of the year last year and I blew through it. It was such a fun read. I can't recommend it enough. I need to see the TV show version of it. Preferably, I'd like to write on it if anybody's going to go ahead and put that into some workings. But I... I love that book. I really like it was exactly as you described. I put it down as like, oh my God, that was so much fun. I really enjoyed the hell out of it. So I'd recommend self-care and I would recommend one to watch as two rom fun rom-com books. And I just picked up How to Do Nothing, which is a nonfiction book by uh, Jenny O'Dell. And I am really excited to read it and I would recommend it, even though I've never read it yet. <laughs> I am currently reading and finishing up because it's very short, um, Intimations by Zadie Smith, which is kind of more like a novella um, long essay. Uh, she wrote it during the pandemic while Shelter in Place is happening. Um, and it's just about everything going on with the pandemic. And she kind of finished it right after the murder of George Floyd. So really poignant, really well written. I think for my next book, though, I kind of want to read uh, what you both have been what you are reading right now, Marco, but what you've already read, Allie. Yeah, self care, really the best time I had all summer. It was like just a joy and one to watch was so fun. And the author actually was on the show in the fall. And she's fantastic. And I think I interviewed her before I had a chance to read it. And so it was one of those situations where I was like, I hope I like the book as much as I like her. And I did. So those are both really fun. And I would highly recommend them. Emily, I would love for you to share a little bit more about your podcast with the listeners, because as I've mentioned to you both multiple times, I think there's like so much crossover. And I just I think that our listeners are basically like the same people. So I want everybody listening to this conversation to know exactly what you have going on over there with Old Millennials Podcast. 
Um, so Old Millennials is a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. And Emily and I, we are going to start season five, March 18th. I almost said 15th. March 18th, season five starts. We actually just had a new mini episode, which are sort of like fun and light. But during our season long episodes, we take one topic and we do a very, very deep dive into all things you could possibly think about all corners of it. Um, like when we did a TRL deep dive, we, t- we went through like the hosts and iconic performances and guests and the beginning and end background stories. Like we love to really get in deep on super pointless pop culture topics. Well, not pointless. They're near and dear to us. And we would be great on anyone's trivia team. If you are looking for someone who's going to know the entire oral history of the Spice Girls, we're your girls. So come check us out. And we have new mini episodes coming out. We're going to do one on the Britney Spears doc next week. And you can follow us on Instagram at the old millennials pod where you'll keep up to date with whatever we're dropping. Yeah, our podcasts are definitely cut from the same cloth. And I'm thrilled to have you listeners. I will make sure that I include links to all things old millennials in the show notes for this episode. I'll be tagging them throughout this week and beyond on the SSR pod Instagram. In the show notes for this episode, there will also be links to all of the awesome book recommendations from Margot and Emily, a link to The Hunger Games, so you can pick those up and support indie bookstores over at bookshop.org, links to all of the fun pieces that we found about The Hunger Games, just lots of good stuff over on the show notes and on social media. Margot, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I think, as I said to you after we spoke on your show, I think we could probably talk four hours about almost anything. So we're going to just have to find more reasons to do that in the future. Yes, let's definitely figure out an excuse to have another crossover episode very soon. Absolutely. Yeah, if we're not careful, I'm worried that we're going to end up like talking ourselves into creating new podcasts together. Uh, so we should just be mindful that that's a real risk if we continue this relationship. We'll, we'll just have to wait till you're done with grad school and then we'll talk about doing that. Happy graduation. So listen, how do you feel about starting a podcast? <laughs> we'll be starting a media company tomorrow. So rest up. <laughs> Thank you both so much. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much, you, Allie. Allie. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>